Visit our website at oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Laura. Hi, everyone. I'm a compulsive overeater. My name's Laura. I'm powerless over food, and it's uh, it's kind of good to be here. <laughs> it's a little daunting, and um, what's important for me to remember is that um, me having the privilege of sharing at this meeting has it's not about me, and it's not about me being special. It's it's not about me. It's about me being a vehicle for doing the best job I can tonight of carrying the message. And that's my job. Our primary purpose in this program is to abstain from compulsive overeating and carry the message to those who still suffer. That's it. That's the bottom line. And so that's, you know, that's my job tonight. And um, where the fear comes from is like, oh, it's about me. It's not. It's not. I'm like, I'm not a special overeater. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm not. I'm so not a special overeater. And um, to prove it, I'll send around some photos. And these photos, what I include in there are my photos, my before and afters. And my before photos, I include in there a couple photos from a uh, photo booth that um, are happy photos from my pre-recovery days. And I like to include those because it's really easy for me to get into thinking my whole life before recovery was just dark. And it was. A lot of it was dark. But there were things that kept me uplifted and things that kept me going during that period that, um, you know, uh, that I'm really grateful that I had those moments. And so that's why I like to include those shots. So what it used to be like. Um, <clears throat> well, I've been a member. Of the, I'll give you the numbers first. I've been a member of Overeaters Anonymous, an active member for 20 years, um, 21 years. And I've been abstaining this time for 19 years. I've been maintaining a 50-pound weight loss for 90 year, uh, for uh, 19 years. And um, so, you know, the real gift is um, I've been thin longer than I was fat. I was fat for 10 years. Um, and uh, I, I milked that experience for all it was worth. And, you know, I don't want to go back there, but I don't control whether I get to go back there. I do my part. I show up for the meetings. Um, I do the actions that were taught to me to do. And... Um, and the results are partially in my hands, but they're partially in the hands of, um, for our newcomer, what we refer to as power greater than ourselves or a higher power. Um, when I came in here, I first came in here in like 79 roughly. And so, as you may figure, since I came back in 87, that, there were eight years between the first time I came in and what I hope is the last time that I came in. So I came in in 79. I, had, um, I went away to college. I was a normal, I had always been a normal body weight, been very active, very physically active. And I went away to college and uh, <clears throat> I was dancing anywhere from two to six hours a day. 
and I gained um, 50 pounds. So um, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of food to scarf down to pack on 50 pounds while doing that level of activity. Um, I had this, um, this weird sense of pride about being the fat dancer. Um, what, I had a lot of false bravado, and that carried me through. You know, I could, I could sort of tough my way through my discomfort in this fat body that I had for the first time. It was so weird to me to have all this weight on me. And what happened to me during that period is that I felt disconnected from my body, except for when I danced. But I really felt just sort of dissociated from myself um, when I gained that weight. And it was very uncomfortable. It was was very uncomfortable to be that out of touch. Um, And I, you know, I'd never had an experience of dieting, of needing to diet, any of that. So suddenly I'm walking around in this big body. I don't know what's going on. I heard about Overeaters Anonymous, and I came that summer, the summer after my first year of school. And I came, um, like, as sort of a summer, summer school audit class that I was doing over this anonymous. And in that summer, um, I lost all the weight. And I was doing what, uh, what was then called, uh, there, there, there was basically a diet that we gave out at that time. And I did that little OA diet. And I understood the emotional recovery end of things, and so I was kind of doing that. But this spiritual component that was talked about just flew right over my head. I'd never had any experience of spirituality. My relationship to religion was, uh, I mean, we were high holiday Jews. We'd go on the high holidays. But there was never any talk of God. And so I didn't know what they were talking about with the spirituality business. So, okay, good. I'll do the diet. I'll work the emotional side of the program. Lost the weight that summer. Went back to school. And when I went back to school, the only meetings that I could get to were um, uh, middle-aged, overweight housewives. And I was young and cool, and I was going to have none of that. And so I left the program. And then I gained all my weight back, and I, my weight fluctuated up and down for like the next eight years. Um, still that experience of just being disconnected from myself physically, really physically and emotionally at a lot of points. Um, what it used to be like, let me be more specific about what it used to be like. What it used to be like is I could eat any guy under the table and I, did, and I, and I had this sense of pride about it. Like, I'm, I'm this big, tough, hard-ass chick that can just, like, pack in all this food. And I had all this bravado. Um, what what was lost for me during that period of, of my life, during much of that period of my life, was um, although I retained some joy, um, the part of me that could be soft, the part of me that could be vulnerable, those parts of me didn't really have a voice anymore. Um, and let me see. I want to be specific about what the eating behaviors were like. And I think the most significant one was that I was a danger to myself and to others. And um, 
I have said, and I and I mean this with all sincerity, that um, if police could issue parking, not parking, driving citations for driving while under the influence of compulsive overeating, <laughs> our roads would be a safer place. Um, and I, I really, I'm, I'm, dead, I'm deadly serious about it because it's just a frigging miracle that I didn't kill myself or anybody else the way I ate and drove. It's just a frigging miracle. Um, there was a guy I heard at a meeting, it must be 18 years ago, I remember I was um, traveling and I heard this guy say that there was a power greater than him looking out for him even before he knew there was something else out there. And I believe that because here's how I drove. I drove, I would cut across four lanes on a freeway. Uh, so I was, of course, in the fast lane where I always drove um, and where I frequently drive to this day. And um, I saw the Howard Johnsons where um, my sugar level had dropped out and I was... And, and I really would get to the point of, like, all my energy would flatten out because there was no sugar running through me anymore. So I needed my fix, and I would cut across the traffic. I would not signal, and I would not look over my shoulder. And I didn't even know I was doing this, okay? It was blackout driving. And the way I know that I did it is that somebody told me that I had, that I had done that with her in my car as my passenger, and I was, you know, I was shocked when she told me that. I was really shocked. She told me, you know, and I, and I thought about it and I thought, I think that happened more often than I can even possibly remember. Because when I needed the sugar, there was, I, I wasn't thinking clearly, there was no rational driving or thought going on. Um, and I, I say this to demonstrate the insanity of the disease that a, a rational thinking person would not behave like that, would not drive like that, okay? So um, I was under the sway of a disease, um, a very powerful disease. And, um, you know, I feel incredibly uh, grateful that I didn't injure myself or anybody else during that time. Um, so... That's some of what I did. The rest of what I did is I would drive from one grocery store to another. Um, I couldn't look clerks in the eye because I knew they knew that I was there to binge. Um, so, I, you know, I couldn't look the world in the eye. I'd be buying all this food. I'd go out to my car. I'd binge on it in the car. I'd binge on it on the way home. I'd binge on it when I got home. Um, and, uh, and I couldn't stop, and I wanted to. And even after I got into the program, I couldn't stop for a long time. So it took me several months to get abstinent the first time. And I'm going to meetings, lots of meetings on a regular basis, couldn't get abstinent, still eating like that. Then I got, a, I mean, I just got struck abstinent. And that lasted for nine months. And I lost all the weight, and great, you know. Oh, pink cloud, I'm abstinent, everything's great. And then, um, then I had a relapse. Don't know why it happened. I was doing everything right. I was going to the meetings, using the tools, the steps, the whole thing. And, um, and I had this relapse. And the relapse lasted for four and a half months. In four and a half months, I had a new job. 
I was managing a dance company. I've got this, you know, new body for the first time. Woo, you know, great, I'm skinny. And I packed on 45 pounds in four and a half months. And it was the most violent eating that I'd ever done, even more so than when I was in college. And it was violent. I mean, it was just like, it was so abusive because um, I had a head full of program and I couldn't stop eating. And it just, you know, didn't matter. I'm like, I'm praying to a power greater than me. I'm making my outreach calls. I'm going to one to three meetings a day. Can't get abstinent. Don't know why. Can't get abstinent. So, um, so okay, so I've kind of focused enough on the what it used to be like. That's kind of what it used to be like. I mean, and, and I was depressed a lot of the time. And I... You know, there were a lot of things that I couldn't do because I was under the sway of this compulsion. You know, I want to say one other thing about what it used to be like. I want to say one other thing about how it kept me from other people. Um, I remember going out to meals with people I loved and cared about. And I couldn't be fully present because I was thinking about when the meal would end so that I could go get some ice cream. And um, I hated that feeling. I just felt so miserable that I was with somebody that I loved and cared about and wanted to be present with them, and I couldn't be present with them. Um, I didn't come into I didn't come into the program because I was fat because. I had all these justifications about being fat. You know, I had all that bravado. So I didn't, the being fat part, I was like pretending that I was in acceptance. I accept myself. I'm fat and I accept myself. But what brought me in was the pain of um, not being able to connect with people I love. The, the distance that I felt. And, uh, and I didn't want that barrier. I didn't want that barrier. And uh, so... Nine, so, so I had the nine months of absence, the four and a half month relapse, and um, I, do, I don't really know what changed that I finally got abstinent. I have all these memories about things that happened during those four and a half months. I was living on the East Coast where I grew up, and I remember one time I went to a meeting, and I was very public about my relapse. I didn't keep any of it a secret, and so when people are struggling with food, I encourage them to talk and talk about it in specific graphic detail. Tell me exactly what you ate. Tell me what you're going to eat. Tell me what you're doing with food. For me, there's no shame in that. You know, it's like what I did when I was in relapse, I reported every bite I ate. I wrote it all down. I was eating 5,000 calories over my three enormous meals a day. Everything was reported. I told it all to my sponsor. There was no, so there's no secrecy and shame and hiding about it. It's like this is what I do. I'm addicted to food, I can't stop, and here's how I do it. Here's what I do when I'm doing food like this. And I reported it all. And that freed me of the shame. It just, it just, it took all that away. So when people talk to me about re- being in relapse or struggling with food, however long it's taken them to get abstinent, uh, what I feel is love and compassion. You know, there's no judgment. So, this is a disease. We don't get, uh, I don't get to judge people because of the disease. 
I'm pretty sure my last binge, and it was a really foggy time, but I'm pretty sure that my last binge was the one with my sponsor, who um, we were at an event, and after the event, I said to her, as I always did, I said, okay, well, I'm going to go stop at the Roy Rogers and binge now. I don't think there's Roy Rogers here, but so it was a fast food place. And... um, uh, and she said, okay, what are you going to have? And I said, I'm going to have fried chicken and biscuits. And she said, do you want me to come sit with you? And I looked at her like, you are freaking kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> what? I've been alone. <laughs> I mean, I've been alone. Nobody watching me binge. People were watching me binge, but it was in secret. You know, it would be like I'd be pretending I wasn't binging while I was binging while I was out with them. So... I accepted her invitation, and this woman sat with me. This woman loved me enough, loved me enough, understood enough that what I had was a disease to sit with me while I benched. And, um, you know, it just blew my mind. It just blew my mind that somebody could care about me that much. And detach from my disease, like detach, separate me from my disease enough to um, give me that gift and give me that, that dignity, you know, the dignity of um, I'm, as, I'm as healthy as I can be right now, as healthy as I can be right now is to be having this binge. I'm doing all I can. I can't, I can't stop. I can't stop. I am powerless over food. I am powerless over food, and my life has become unmanageable. That's the first step. I am powerless over food. No sane person would do what I was doing. Okay. Um, What happened, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. You know, that's like the weird mystery of the program is I don't know what happens that I get struck abstinent. One day I'm abstinent. The day before I'm (coughs) abstinent. Don't know. Don't know. There's no formula. There's no magic pill. You know, it pisses me off. It's like, I love roadmaps. You give me the map. You tell me what to do. You tell me how to do. Great. But, you know, I'm given a roadmap here. I'm given tools. I'm given steps. But even though I was doing all those, didn't make me abstinent immediately. Um, So, okay, what are you saying? What happened? Well, what happened is I just kept coming. I just kept coming. I never expected to be a member of Overeaters Anonymous for 20 years, like in my wildest dreams. Um, when I first, okay, when I first came back into the program, I was dating somebody who was in AA, and he told me, and I'd been out of OA for a while, and he said to me, yeah, I go to meetings every day. And I looked at him like, loser. What? Like, don't you have anything better to do than, like, spit your ass in these dumb meetings? And ended up, he ended up being somebody that I was able to 12, he 12-stepped me back through his example of what he was doing in AA. Like, through him, I got 12-stepped back into here. And then, like, fell out of touch with him and a couple years later he called me up and he goes, I want you to take me to an OA meeting. And like, you know, as far as I know, he's still a member of OA. Um, This is how we do it. We never know how we're carrying the message to others. I mean, I've had the most amazing experience of carrying the message to others. Beautiful, beautiful experiences of carrying the message to others. Um, And... uh, 
and having others carry the message to me in all kinds of ways, in, in just way, ways that are so unexpected, and not even necessarily like the obvious ways. Um, I, I, this past summer, I had surgery on my feet, and um, and I needed to rely on people for a lot of help. And uh, I, I had I had this one time that I needed to get a ride to uh, a doctor's appointment, and I was really I had asked a dozen people to take me, and no one was able to take me. They wanted to, but they the timing didn't work. So I'm like, you know, screw you, God. I've like asked a dozen people. I've been so friggin' humble. You know, where's my ride? And um, <laughs> which is how I get sometimes. And um, and so and see, I need a I need a higher power that can handle me when I'm like that because I we talk a lot in here about acting as if, which basically means faking it, pretending, making believe, and. Um, I kind of act as if my relationship with this higher power is my primary relationship. It's elusive, though. It's really elusive. Like, sometimes it's like, yeah, it's my primary relationship. That's the most important thing in my life. But most of the time, like, I'm far more interested in the other things in my life than I am in developing a relationship with this higher power. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I'm like, screw you, God, where's my ride? And, and I'm sharing in a meeting. I'm sharing in a meeting about how hard it is to be impaired and not being able to get around and uh, need, you know needing to ask for rides all the time and all this stuff. Now I'm not I'm not flat out saying I need a ride to a place because I don't do that publicly in meetings. I don't say I, like if I need help, I will ask people one on one for help. But I wouldn't like publicly advertise, hey, I need a job or whatever. Um, <laughs> So this woman that I don't even know comes up to me after the meeting and she says, um, you know, I heard you say how hard it is for you to get around. Can I give you a ride anywhere? And I said, well, I have this one ride. Thank you so much for asking. I have this one ride. This woman who has four children, four children, works out her child care to drive me to my doctor's appointment. And we ended up having this I've kind of jumped ahead to the what happened, you know, part of my story. We end up having this incredible day together where um, we just carry the message to each other. You know, I'm able to share some things in my experience that are helpful to her, and she shares things, in, and she's like a relative, relatively a newcomer, shares some things in her experience that are just really helpful for me to hear. That's how it works, you know. How it works is we help each other in here. In, often in unexpected ways like that. Um, okay. So, <laughs> trying to get back on track here to the what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. Did I already do my, did I already blow past the whole time for the what happened or where am I? Am I, am I my third third? I'm in my third third, okay, of my speaking time. So, um, what happened is that I kept coming back. I just kept coming back and kept coming back and kept coming back. I never expected to be a member for 20 years. And now I try not to have expectations, but I anticipate that I'm going to be a member of Overeaters Anonymous for the rest of my life. I hope I am. You know, I really hope I am. Because I don't know another way that works 
for me to have a right relationship with food. I, I don't know another way that works. Um, I was never a dieter. I never had that whole, you know, I hadn't, I found a way before I found dieting. So I never had the whole dieting experience. Um, I have an experience of, um, you know, just being deeply, deeply healed. Deeply healed. Um, in ways that I never could have imagined. You know, so, so first, first I get the healing with the food. You know, that's, that's like the foundation is I get right relationship with food. And then I get all these other goodies. Part of why I keep coming back 20 years is because I'm still in that job. Um, as some people in this room can attest to, still in that job. And, um, but I get a daily reprieve from my nutty relationship with food and my nutty thinking in other areas of my life. I have tools for dealing with my nutty thinking, my, you know, potentially nutty behaviors. I get a reprieve from that. And what I get is um, I get to be the kind of person that I want to be. You know, I get to be a person that looks clerks in the eyes today. One of my living amends, one of the ways I make amends to grocery clerks Mm -hmm. who, believe me, I was rude. I was, you know, I couldn't look them in the eye because they knew I was binging. I was impatient because they weren't ringing me up fast enough so I could get to the car and get my binge in me. Is um, I... I never talk on a cell phone when I'm checking out unless it's like some dire emergency and my doctor calls me. I pay attention to my clerk. I look them in the eye. I thank them. You know. Now, I wouldn't naturally have become that kind of person. I learn how to be that kind of person in here. I get a moral code in here that I wasn't taught growing up. I learn it in here. I learn it because... Um, I surround myself with people that mirror for me the kind of behavior that I want to practice. So I keep coming back because I keep learning things. And because, um, because life keeps coming on, and I keep learning how to cope with whatever life sends to me. The like really exquisite experiences and the really hard ones. So in the course of my 20 years of being in program, I have moved... Uh, I moved two-thirds of the way across country and then the last third of the way across country. Um, I went back to school. Um, I, uh, I separated from my parents, who I had a really bad relationship with, and I reunited with them. And I developed, uh, I have devel- I developed an amazing relationship with them. Um, I, have, uh, I have developed relationships with people that are just sweet and intimate and lovely um, I've been able to do that because I'm no longer waiting for the dinner to end so I can race to Swenson's and get my bench food I, uh, I've changed careers a couple times and you know, really found ways to use my talents and my gifts in my career uh, I've had some huge losses um, gosh three years ago uh, I lost my dad who I had grown very close to over the last eight years of his life and within a couple months period lost my dad and my cat and um, you know I just had never experienced grief as I did during that period um, I uh, you know and, and there's just been amazing joy in my life Amazing joy in my life. Um, 
I, I um, you know, I just feel so much gratitude to um, this fellowship. And um, I guess 20 years ago, I was like racing so hard to, I didn't even know where, where I was trying to race to. And um, I still race pretty hard after things. You know, I'm a go-getter, and I'm really out there, and I like doing things. And But there's a, there's a quality of peace that I have today that I didn't have before. When I came in here, I heard about serenity. And again, I was young and hip and cool. And so serenity, that was like for old ladies in rocking chairs. Didn't have any need for any kind of serenity. I was into agitation. I loved my agitation, you know. Today, I like avoid agitation. I'm not into it, you know. It's like... I heard somebody shared at a meeting recently who's taken his one-year birthday chip, and I loved what he shared. He said, when he heard all this crap about serenity when he first came in here, he was like, oh, damn, these people are going to try to take my edge from me. I love my edge. And he said, you know, it's great because now I still have some edge, and I still have edge, but there's softness around my edge today. You know, one of the things that I was given back, because I had it when I was a kid, I was given back my ability to be soft. I was given back my ability to be vulnerable. I was given back um, my ability to feel, you know, just to deeply feel things and, um, and love, you know, just to, to, um, to love myself, to respect myself, my, my totally flawed-ass self, um, but to also appreciate that yeah, I'm flawed, but I also have, like, really great parts of me. And, and to be able to have the self-respect and the self-esteem, like, I didn't have that. I didn't have that self-respect and self-esteem. And to be able to look at the people in my world and to appreciate them, really, really appreciate them as they are, and to accept their imperfections as well. You know, that's, that's stuff I learned in here. Again, because I didn't have a model for that. So, um, I keep coming around. I like to say, you know, there are a lot of people like me that have been around these rooms for years and years and years. And uh, there's got to be some reason, because what I find is I meet people in here that are really bright, really talented, really creative, and have way better things to do than sit on their asses in a room for an hour a day. But, you know what? I don't have better things to do than this. For one, you know, if for one hour, a few times a week, I come to a meeting, I am empowered to live my life more fully through the week. I am empowered to live a life free of cutting across traffic. I am empowered to... Um, live a life free of the bondage of just binging out of control. I can look the world in the eye today. Um, I can be useful. You know, I can, I can be useful to others. Um, so, I think, I think that's enough. And there's probably like, what, one minute left. Say again. Just repeat the question.
Okay. So now um, you all can ask me questions. <laughs> and um, yes, please. Okay, so the question was, what is my food plan and abstinence as I define it? And, um, you know, it's interesting because a, a few years ago there started to be this thing about, people talked about a food plan and abstinence as separate things. For me, I'm one of these people that, it, it's, it's one and the same. They're kind of a bundle for me. And um, abstinence for me is, I abstain from compulsive overeating. It's freedom from compulsive overeating. It's... Um, and as part of my abstinence, I use a food plan. Uh, the food plan that I use is uh, I measure my meals when I'm home. And um, when I eat out, I don't measure my meals, but there are specific parameters for what I eat out. When I eat out, my meals are big. Sometimes they're uncomfortably big, and I call them in. They're not all, I, actually, it's a miracle when I eat a meal out and it's not bigger. Because the fact is... You know, they put a trowel in front of you, and, you know, it's like the question is, okay, how much of the trowel am I going to eat? And it's, um, it's humbling. You know, it's humbling to have to deal with that. And what I frequently do around that is I often, uh, I, I do report my food to um, either a sponsor or another member. And frequently, when I have a meal that's uncomfortably big, what I do is I just call somebody and I report it to them. What that does for me, it stops any conversation in my head about it. And, uh, and that's freedom. That for me is freedom. It's like, okay, I call it in, I say what it is. And sometimes what I find really interesting is that because it's all mixed together in a different kind of way, like there's a, I don't know, the... When I sit down and I eat my measured meal at home, it's like the carbs are here, the veggies are here, and the proteins here. It's all really clear what I'm doing. It's measured out. I know what I got. Um, and then, you know, at the dinner out, like the carbs are the protein and the veggies, and it's all. So I call somebody and I say, well, here's what I had. And I, as I say it out loud, I kind of go, oh, well, I think I had about a third extra carbs, but my protein was average, and oh. My veggies were about average, and I'm surprised because I feel, like, confused by what I ate. But when I say it out loud, I get clarity. And so for me, it's the clarity. The clarity really helps me. Um, and uh, so I think that's, that's how I do That's how I do that. You raise your hand up. Yeah. Okay, so the question was to describe what it was like the first time I was abstinent and how it was different from the second time that I got abstinent. Um, yeah, actually, that's a, that's a really neat question because the first time that I got abstinent, I was working with a sponsor who... Uh, first of all, it was a male sponsor. He was gay, so, you know, it's, I thought it was okay, you know, work with a guy. Usually you're supposed to work with a woman if you're a woman and a man with a man. Um, what I did is I followed this food plan that he was doing, which was a fat-free food plan the first time around. Don't know why he was doing that, but he was doing that. And I need a certain amount of fat in my diet. Like, it's actually brain food for me. You know, I, I can't eat a fat-free diet. It doesn't work for me. So 
I was doing that, and the weight just fell off me, and I actually looked kind of gaunt. I look at a photo of myself from then, and my face looks drawn. My weight wasn't much different, but I think it was than it is now, but I think it just wasn't working for me, was one piece of it. Um, Second time I got abstinent. Uh, this is such an interesting question. I really like it cause, um, because I love talking about the brass tacks of how you get abstinent and how you because it's it's a process. You know, it's like I the process for me was when I got abstinent the second time, I was eating three enormous meals a day. They were not measured meals, but there was no there's oh another answer to the question about defining my abstinence in my food plan is it's a sugar free food plan. I don't eat sugar, I don't eat my drug foods. There are certain drug foods that are poison for me and I just don't eat them. Because I can't eat them like a lady, so I have no business eating them. Can't eat them like a lady or like a gentleman, you know. I mean I'm just <laughs> no, there are no foods. So um so the second time I got abstinent, I'm eating bigger meals. Um, and uh, what I did for my first six months of the abstinence was um, I ate all my meals at home. I was too scared to eat out. And uh, I ate all my meals at home reading the big book. <laughs> I don't know. Nobody recommended it to me, but I was like, that was all I could do. I needed to... I'd say a thank you, you know, ask a power greater than me to help me with the meal before the meal. I'd eat the meal pretty slowly. I'd read my big book. When the meal was over, I'd say, thank you that the meal has an ending. And that was my meal. Big-ass meals. And they slowly got refined down. Um, And my absence has changed over the years, too, you know, where I've seen nutritionists. I've gotten outside help and guidance about what's good for me, my body weight, my body size, that kind of thing. So um, I have sought outside guidance for that at different times. Yes? Um, how has uh, the program changed or, or not changed your attitude about religion? How has the program changed or not changed my attitude about religion? Um, I, I'm still not a very religious person. Uh, I don't consider myself a religious person at all. I have, over the course of my 20 years, gone to various religious institutions um, and it's never quite taken for me. It's just never quite taken for me. And so um, it's helped. Whenever I've sought, sought out those things, I've often gotten in touch with new things and um, had an experience. What I seek is an experience of spirituality, of, um, you know, what is this power greater than me, and how can I connect with it? That's what I'm looking for, is how can I deepen my relationship with this mysterious greater power that has the power to restore me to sanity and heal me. Um, And for some people, you know, I like to say this to newcomers, that there is room in here for people of belief and of non-belief, that all we're asked to do is find a power greater than us, which can easily be the program itself. So, you know, having a religious background, you know, a relationship with a higher power, it's all in how we define it. So I would say in many respects, um, you know, I've done some exploring, but I still don't consider myself a religious person, though I do consider um, the foundation of my experience to be, like, what would a power greater than me have me do in a particular situation? If If I'm in a quandary about something, which... I am the type of person that's easily put into a quandary about things. Um, so when I have a decision to make, it's, you know, I ask for guidance from others, 
and I take time to be quiet and listen for intuition to guide me. Like my decisions to go back to school, move across country, take different jobs, some of the you know, just most enormous decisions I've made have been guided by um, would, would this higher power of mine have me do this at this time? Yes? I'm curious about how your needs changed regarding um, what you were looking for in a sponsor over the years. Were there times when you needed to sponsor more focused on the big book versus food sponsor versus OA literature? That's a great question. Thank you. Um, uh, how have my needs changed with regards to what I sought in a sponsor over the years? And I think that in the beginning, I was in such a state of despair, I didn't know what I needed. Um, actually, what I needed early on was I needed to kind of talk nonstop. Um, because there was so much crap in my brain that needed to be talked out. And, and I knew, I was very clear that one sponsor was not enough in the beginning. So I had my sponsor, and then I had like this, like, posse of people that I could call on a regular basis and just ah, I mean I was like I was such a like total friggin nut job and because like my first year of abstinence was my um, year of fear so I was terrified my first year like I'd wake up in the morning it'd take me two hours to get my head screwed on straight so I was just scared so I'd call people and talk it through sponsor and sort of Subsponsors, and then my second year was my uh, year of anger. That was a really fun year because um, you know, stop eating, get in touch with shit that's going on. So my anger year again. You know, I'd get up in the morning, I'd be like, I call people, talk it over, work it through. Um, I have, uh, yeah, I've had a lot of different types of sponsors. Um, I have at different times needed people specifically to talk to about food, um, people to guide me through the steps. Um, mostly how I work with a sponsor is I call them and I tell them what's going on. And, uh, and I look for them to bring me back to a program focus on it. So what I usually want to do is just sort of like, oh, here's what's going on. And then it's like, and then I realize, oh, shit, now I have to put this in context of the friggin' program. I don't get to just say, my coworker's a pain in the ass. I get to say, my coworker's a pain in the ass. Okay, what's my part in it? No, I really don't want to talk about my part. Can I just talk about how my coworker's a pain in the ass? And, you know, and what a sponsor does for me there is keeps me on track put the focus on me, take responsibility for my part. So I look to a sponsor to kind of, I like to use the word monitor what I'm doing. Now, I'm not a person who really likes being monitored. I just want to, like, reform it my own way. But I've actually grown to love structure in here. Sometimes I like structure a little too much in here. Um, and I have to be careful of that. But having, having someone outside of me, Watching what I'm doing and being able to mirror back to me the progress that I'm making, that's incredibly helpful to me. Someone that knows me deeply and can, monitor, you know, can model for me what I'm looking for and can remind me of how far I've come. That's a lot of what I seek today in a sponsor. Is there time for any more? Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. Thank you for your share. Can you talk about your experience today? With the eighth step, with making my list, 
Okay. The question is, can I talk about my experience of uh, my eight-step list? There are still people that are on my list that I have not made amends to. And there are people that come to my mind, like, as I continue to recover, it's like, oh, there's somebody else that I need to make an amend to. You know, it surprises me how memories will come back. And sometimes it's just a small thing. Sometimes it's just a small thing that I'm reminded of. And it's not even, it may not even be someone that I did some big thing that I need to go back and find them, but I remember something. So, and for the newcomer in the, in the eighth and ninth step, we make a list of people we've harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. And in the ninth step, we have the lovely opportunity of making those amends, which sometimes can be, you know, really sweet can be a really healing thing. And sometimes it can be, you know, not that great. I've, I, uh, I attempted to make an amend to someone who refused my amend. And, um, you know, that can happen. But my job is to make the amend for me. To make the amend for me. Um, mostly what I try to do today is to live in the tenth step so I don't have to be adding people to my eighth step list of amends to make. Um, so in the 10th step, I take a daily inventory of what I'm doing. And I look at people that I may have harmed that day and, um, you know, so that I can promptly make amends to them. And we're out of time.